0: We'll just uh, work through in light of kind of what we've uh, covered the last couple days. What then do you do with the message of the gospel in relation to Jew and Gentile, and and uh, how the hope of eternal life was administrated um, before and after Acts ten, and what the Jerusalem Council is about, and and uh, how. How the early church dealt with the difference between Jew and Gentile in their calling and their destiny and in light of their destiny, and and we really run into the same issue today. You'll run into it in messianic congregations, and uh and it's, it's still causes strife and difficulty to to this day. And so uh hopefully it'll give us a little bit of clarity on how the early church dealt with it. And therefore, you know, how, uh, there's not going to be a lot of like practical how to on evangelism. Uh, we might be able to cover that in like a question and answer. Um, but, uh, it's more specific to how is the gospel administrated between Jew and Gentile in the early church. So, um, <clears throat> the inclusion of Jew and Gentile in salvation, if you want to look on the first page there. Uh, the, the question is, uh, um, you know, after the Tower of Babel and you have the Abrahamic covenant, embedded in the Abrahamic covenant is both Jew and Gentile, the descendants of Abraham and the other Goyim, the nations of the earth. And so, kind of at the heart of of the covenant, you get it in Genesis 12 and 22, and then uh, again in in 18, where it says, Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. And so, part of being blessed in him, it was understood the blessing, of course, is salvation, the resurrection, the age to come, inheriting the earth, these things. Um... Uh, Genesis 17, he received the the sign of the covenant, which was uh, circumcision. So you're to undergo circumcision. It will be the sign of the covenant between uh, me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So on that day he took all of his household, you know, that whether uh, whether you know, his offspring or not, and everybody was circumcised. So, I don't want to, you know, the issue of circumcision is strange. I I obviously don't want to dwell on it because it's not really appropriate, but it's a strange phenomenon to cut the foreskin. Uh, But uh, we have to recognize what it was, um, what, what was the, purpose of it, Um, and so it kind of revolves, of course, around messianic expectation, because the core of the covenant is is there's going to come forth a seed from you, your offspring, and and so the sign of the covenant is a sign of messianic faith, you know, that, that from the loins of Abraham is going to come the one that was, of course, prophesied from Genesis 3, and he would be the one that in him all the nations would be blessed. So you pick that up in, in Romans 4 where you get the, I mean, Romans 9 where Paul says, unto the Israelites, uh, they're given, right, so what's this say? I have uh, 9.2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish... That I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. So he's he's making he's kind of making the analogy of circumcision. Because if you're not circumcised, you know the Lord says you're cut off from from the covenant in Genesis 17. So he's saying, I wish I could be cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Those of my own race, the people of Israel, theirs is the adoption as sons. There's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises, theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all. so you get kind of the the climax like the 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 Jews have been entrusted with these things, and of course in Paul's mind these things are different than from what the Gentiles have been entrusted with, and the height of it is that. The ancestry and the lineage is actually the Christ's, the Messiah's brought forth. And uh, so circumcision becomes kind of the, the, the core of what it means to be Jewish. And uh, it becomes the center of the debate about what do we do with the Gentiles. Because up to that point, if Gentiles were going to be included... In the covenant included in salvation, then the way they're blessed in Abraham as the Gentiles become Jews, right? And uh, so as they're coming out, like Exodus 12, as they're coming out of Egypt, and you had a mixed multitude that went up, uh, the they uh, they were all after they came in and crossed over uh, Gilgal and with Joshua, everybody was circumcised after they crossed over the uh, the Jordan. And so the assumption is that everybody who went up from Egypt became Jews. And uh, <clears throat> so this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you've circumcised him. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger, in the Greek, uses the 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 uh, or the proselyte. <clears throat> so if the proselyte or the stranger shall sojourn, sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and the stranger or the proselyte who so- sojourns among you like an esterade in every province every city wherever the edict of the king went there was joy and gladness among the jews with feasting and celebrating and many people of other nationalities became jews and the septuagint actually adds in uh, another you know a verb and a kai and says they were circumcised and became jews or became practicing jews because fear of the jews had seized them and so, I just put a footnote there from the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament that just gives, you know, for the article on proselyte, that gives you kind of the background of how, uh, you know, like in Matthew 23, you, you go over land and sea to make a proselyte, and then you make him twice the son of hell, the, twice the son of, of Gehenna, instead of a son of, of the kingdom and the resurrection. And so it says the rite for the reception of proselytes consisted of three parts, circumcision, baptism, and the offering of a sacrifice in the temple to show, you know, uh, loyalty, obedience to the law. The non-Jew received thus into Judaism was regarded after conversion in every respect as a Jew. This means in the first instance that like every Jew, he is under obligation to keep the whole Jewish law. In, in keeping is the saying of Paul in Galatians 5:3, I testified to every male who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. So this is, this is the if you you know the diagram here, you basically have a number of people involved, right? You have descendants of Abraham and that's the inner circle designated primarily by circumcision. That's the primary sign of being a descendant of Abraham. But the star, of course, is the remnant of Israel, those who have the faith of their father and who the the sign of circumcision is actually a sign of the covenant. They walk according to the covenant and the outward sign corresponds to the inward reality of faith. Right, And so the prophets lay out that there are many who are not circumcised of heart. They're circumcised outwardly, but not of of heart. And so you have those within Israel, like Paul says in in Romans uh, 9 after that. He says, verse 6, It's not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because, nor because they are his descendants, are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not the natural children who are God's children, but it's the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. So again, we're Paul's Paul's talking about the Israelites right now; those of his own race. We're, we're not talking about Gentiles becoming Israelites. He's just saying. In, in Romans 9, 6, he's dealing with the issue of there's Jews that rejected the Messiah because of their hardness, and they crucified him, right? How do you do? What do you do with that, right? And Paul just says, well, Christ was born of them, but not all are Israelites and have the faith of their forefather, right? And so there's... There's those who are descended from Abraham who are have the same faith of their father, and there are, the, there are those outside the star but are still circumcised who are not of the faith of their father. And so then Gentiles are divided into two, well, three categories, right? Gentiles are divided into pagans that have no regard for anything. Obviously, they're all inheriting a lake of fire. Then there's God-fearers who respect the Jews, and honor the Jews, but will not be circumcised. And those also will, the wrath of God will fall on on them. And then there are those who accept circumcision circumcision and and offer sacrifice and are baptized. And so it's those that are believed that are actually uh, regarded as children of Abraham. So if you remember Romans 4, You know, this is Paul arguing, no, they don't have to be circumcised to be regarded as children of Abraham and be included in salvation in the covenant. So flip over to page two. So Acts 10 is kind of the big hinge upon which, um, you know, Peter has the vision and you have the... You have the sheet that comes down with all the animals and God says to eat and he says, Never, Lord, and and you get the thing, you know, don't declare unclean what I've declared clean and in that he was declaring the Gentiles to be clean by faith. And so then the after the vision the people come from Cornelius, and Cornelius is a God fear. Okay, so it's assumed that that Cornelius is not going to inherit eternal life, even though even though everybody, the Jews, highly regard him and, and and he fears God, but he he hasn't he hasn't been incorporated into the covenant and, and heir of salvation. So Peter goes to Cornelius's house and he says, "We've come from Cornelius, the centurion. He's a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people." While, people, while Peter was still speaking these words, you know, he came in. Told the testimony of John the Baptist and Jesus, and he 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 you know, he commanded us to testify that he's the judge of the living and dead, and, and that everybody who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins. And so he says, While Peter was speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on even the Gentiles. Right? Like because this is the order. You 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 believe, you, you fear God, and then you become a Jew, circumcision, baptism, you offer the sacrifice in the temple, then you receive the Holy Spirit as the confirmation that you're gonna be saved. Right? And so you have in Acts ten, you have Gentiles who fear God who believe the message, but they have not become proselytes and become Jews, and they receive the Holy Spirit. Okay? So you have to kind of grapple, why are they astonished? Because there's an ordained pattern that God has set up that all of a sudden now God is defying. Right? And it's like, how can these Gentiles have the approval of God? Right? Without being uh, circumcised and, and becoming proselytes. So, The apostles, Acts 11, the apostles and brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Peter began and explained everything precisely as it happened. So he laid out the whole vision. He laid out going to Cornelius' house. He laid out preaching to him and baptism in the Holy Spirit. He says, so if God gave them the same gift as he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, so then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. So this is the, it's like, so they don't have to become Jews to receive the confirmation and be granted repentance unto eternal life. Right? So I also just did another footnote out of the same article from T.D. and t The attitude at the bottom of the page of the primitive Palestinian community to the God-fearers was based on that of Palestinian Judaism. The only non-Jew to have part in salvation affected in Jesus was the one who had first become a member of the Jewish people by acceptance of circumcision an obligation to keep the whole Torah law, which represented by sacrifice and then the cleansing of baptism. Otherwise, the non-Jew remained a Gentile, and as such he would fall victim to God's wrath in the last judgment. So this is what is being overcome by the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Acts 10, apart from becoming a Jew. So then, Acts 15, some men came down from Judea to Antioch, And we're teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So this is assuming the book of Galatians and the whole controversy that we saw earlier today was happening before the Council of Jerusalem. One, because it happens in the same place. It's the same kind of phenomenon that's referenced at the beginning of Acts 15. And also, there's no reference to the council in the book of Galatians, which was the defining feature of the early church, and you think there would be some reference to the particular issue that's going on. So it's, it's, pretty, it's, it's generally assumed by conservative scholarship that the book of Galatians is written before the council of Jerusalem, and that the rebuke of Peter was actually by Paul was actually why Peter got up and gave the testimony that he did in Acts fifteen. <clears throat> so, uh, so he says this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. Okay, so again, what's the dispute and debate over? Do the Gentiles have to become Jews, be circumcised, and obey and and obey the the, the law, in order to be saved from the wrath of God, right? These, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And so this is, this is just them being zealous for what God has revealed, right? And they're trying to work out, this is what the Word of God says, but this is what's happened. What do we do with that? So Acts 15, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, this is after they they delegated, you know, the dot, dot, dot is they delegated to go up to Jerusalem. They come up to Jerusalem, and then, now we're in Jerusalem, then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them, brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. And of course, the message of the gospel in in capsule form is in Acts 10 when he's preaching to to Cornelius, and it's the twofold. It's the cruciform apocalyptic that he's we've he commanded us to preach and testify that he's the judge of the living and the dead, and in him you receive the forgiveness of sins. Right, the the Justification by faith in light of the judgment to come. And so he said, God, who knows the heart, judged that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear, no... We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. And then Paul and Barnabas get up and they share, you know, about what the Lord had done and the miracles. And when Paul and Barnabas finished, James spoke up, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it's written. So again, it's agreement, not fulfillment. And, uh, and he says, after this, I'll return, rebuild David's fallen tent. It's ruins. I'll rebuild. I'll restore it that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name says the Lord who does these things. They've been known for ages. So you have just a quotation from the prophets and, and you have a, you know, I mean, it's, scattered throughout the prophets like Isaiah 11 he'll raise a banner and for the gentiles to gather he'll also call the the remnant of israel back and and so there's there's jew and gentile distinction in the age to come uh, after the judgment of the last day and but amos 9 is quoted as representing that and he's just saying look there's jews and gentiles <coughs> Uh, who were both saved, so this agrees with the prophets, it agrees with what God has done by giving them the assurance of salvation. It's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times, and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So the the question is, what does this fourfold, uh, the fourfold prescription, which is then rehearsed later, um, w- w- what exactly does it mean? So, I just put a quote from Philo of Alexandria, where he kind of describes the um. Describes what happens in the pagan sacrifices and rituals, which involves strangling animals and 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 the blood and and uh, so it's basically they're giving a fourfold look. The Gentiles need to not do the extremely offensive things, okay, and it's assumed they'll be discipled in paths of righteousness. They'll be discipled in in uh, in 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 the ways of the law, and and not murdering, not you know the like Romans 15. Therefore, let no debt, debt outstanding except the debt of love, for love fulfills the law. All the commandments: do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not do these things are fulfilled in the in the single commandment: love your neighbor as yourself. Right. So it's assumed that the Gentiles will be discipled out of their pagan ways, but they need not be burdened with the particular stewardship of the law involving uh, the, the, um, the issues of Sabbath and the calendar, the festivals, the kosher particulars on kosher diet and these things, that we shouldn't lay that on the Gentiles and force them to be circumcised. Right. So um, this is why immediately after they send out people and, and the Gentiles are they rejoice in the message at the end of Acts 15. And then immediately in Acts 16, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken by all, by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. Okay, so you have the guy who is, I mean, you're, you know, Galatians 5. If you allow yourself to be circumcised, Christ will be of no meaning to you. You know, like, the man's zealous about circumcision having ultimately no meaning in salvation on the day of the Lord and 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 driving home that you don't have to be circumcised to be saved, and then he takes his right hand man, the guy who becomes his main disciple, and circumcises him because of the Jews in that place. So the point of that is that Paul's not being a hypocrite. He's just he's just walking according to what has already been decided by the church under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, that the Jews should continue in obedience to the law and the Gentiles should not be burdened with it. Do you understand? So nothing in Acts 15 changes anything about how it's understood that the Jews should walk in their stewardship of the law, in receiving the law, or in the temple, in its service, or in the covenants, right? The whole list in Romans nine, all that is assumed to continue on under Jewish stewardship. It's just that, what do we do with the Gentiles now? And should we force them to carry the same burden as the Jews? And that's what in Acts fifteen they said, no, we shouldn't do that, right? So, um, so what? So is that Acts fifteen like is that considered Gentile stewardship? Those four things. Or they're not, like, means of righteousness. No, this isn't this isn't a question either way. The question, it's the same basis of righteousness, which we'll get to either way. It required obedience to the law wasn't the basis. Perversion of that was a problem in the early church, but it, it was assumed that even on the basis of faith, that we're required to obey the law, right? Even when our obedience to the law wasn't the basis of faith, we're still required to obey as Jews. And it was on the same basis of obedience, the Gentiles also will be saved, but they ought not to be required to obey the law, right? So, um... So, Acts 21, you get the 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 some of the same dynamics. When we came to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard it, they glorified God. They said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. And this is not what Paul's doing. He's telling the Jews that they should circumcise their children and walk according to the customs given by Moses, and that the Gentiles don't have to be. Okay, but then you have a perversion of guys coming in saying that this is the basis of faith and the gentiles have to become jews because that's the basis of faith is is obedience to the law and paul saying no the basis of faith is not obedience to the law the basis of faith is faith in christ crucified and the gentiles will be justified by that same faith and they ought not have to be required to obey the law and, be, and circumcise their children this argument by uh, Paul. Uh, was a little different than the Peter right Peter didn't forcefully adhere to this what Paul says in this passage. Um, in Acts 15 they're saying the same thing. there's there's the perversion of that in Galatians 2 before Acts 15 that Peter corrects or Paul corrects Peter on. It. but then it's assumed that Peter corrects himself and he says the same thing. As Paul does in Acts fifteen, how how that understanding came to be like, through the Holy Spirit or through the discussion? Yeah, it's assumed the understanding came, you know, through the correction at Antioch in in Galatians two, and that that understanding was given, that it was given in Acts ten with Cornelius. Then you have a perversion that gets recorded in Galatians two, and a correction by Pete, by Paul, and then it's 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 right in Acts fifteen. So the assumption is that that Peter and Barnabas get led astray between Acts ten and Acts fifteen. That's very interesting. I didn't know that. I was struggling with that. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. So, uh huh. So so he says. Um, he says, uh, you see, brother, how many thousands among the Jews they're zealous for the law and they've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do, Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men Purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses, so that they they may shave their heads. Thus all will know there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. (coughs) (coughs) But as for the Gentiles, who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what's been strangled, and from sexual immorality. So you have the same declaration as Acts 15. And the assumption is right after that, you know, in the next verse, verse 26, where he says, The next day Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end, and the offering would be made for each of them so it was assumed it's as generally a four day process and offerings were made on each day and so uh so again there's no pretense going on here there's no like paul just kind of playing along to appease everyone and then he goes out amongst the gentiles and tries to overturn everything right he, there there's there's no pretense he's simply he's in agreement and then you know, when he's arrested after that, he's arrested because they saw Paul with a Gentile and assumed that when they saw him in the temple that he had brought the Gentile into the temple. But Paul was very clear, I I was I was ceremonial ceremonially clean when I was in the temple and in his testimony right after that in Acts twenty one. So he simply came up to the temple and and made the offerings and that he himself was in obedience to the law and that he was teaching the Jews living amongst the Gentiles also to live in obedience to the law and that the Gentiles ought to live according to the requirements that they made at the Council of Jerusalem. What kind of an offering would they have to make? Yeah, I mean, it would be, I'm not sure exactly which one, but I assume it would be one of the ones out of Leviticus 1-7. through Standard. Like an animal or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some animal would be sacrificed, whether a young bull or lamb or whatever it was. And yeah. that was after Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so this gets this gets into the the question. I mean, it's a, it's a valid question of, um, you know, and and this is a, a little bit of. You know, in in Hebrews, the what's the difference between the sacrificial system of the blood of bulls and goats and the blood of Christ, and what do they address? And like Acts 13, where Paul is in Antioch, and he says, um, he says, uh, verse 38. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. That in through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. And so, along with Hebrews 9, I don't know if I, I, think I have it in there, but you get this idea that there's some things that the, that the sacrifices actually make atonement for, right? There, there's actually something that happens in the Old Testament sacrifices. Because otherwise, it's, it's just, it's, it's false words, right? We, in Leviticus, where you'll offer this and it will make atonement for you on the altar. Like, was there actually something that happened in that process? And generally, most, you know, most people just kind of go along and don't think about it and say, oh, well, that was the Old Testament type and now it's fulfilled in the New Testament sacrifice and therefore it really has no meaning in and of itself. And it's like, no, Something actually happened in that. And so, like Hebrews 9 says, it says uh, the blood of bulls and goats. He entered the most holy place. the, The blood of bulls and goats, verse 13, and the ashes of heifers sprinkled on those that are ceremonially unclean to sanctify them so that they're outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? So then it goes on down in there where uh, when Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to the people, he took blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll. And all the people, he said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything that everything be cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. Okay, so there's an assumption that there is actually something happening and a cleansing that's happening by the sacrifices of the animals with the tabernacle in the wilderness and then in the temple. The question is what what was being cleansed and was it, a, was it effective for salvation eternally. And so this is just how I read it, that, that they, there's, they, they saw the sacrifices as actually doing something and cleansing the flesh so that there could be a dwelling of God while there's a body of death going on in light of this, the Spirit filling the tabernacle and filling the temple. So that men could enter the presence of God without dying. How much more then is the blood of Christ to cleanse our conscience inwardly that we can dwell with God when he comes in fullness on the earth at the day of the Lord into the ages to come, right? So as, as you're working through the book of Acts, there's never any uh, idea that the sacrifices in the temple are ending but there's a some there's an assumption that there's a, been a greater sacrifice that has been made right that is is more effectual that the one doesn't disqualify the other it's just that the other points to the one but th- the other does something in and of itself so there's never in there there's never communicated in any way that paul is saying well we should stop offering sacrifices in the temple how that's going to work going into the age to come. I'm not really sure. I I think, you know, you have lots of scriptures in the old Testament that seem to suggest there's going to be sacrifices in the age to come, but I assume that will be during a transitional age because the point of the sacrifice is that you have a body of death and that thing needs to be cleansed in order to enter in the presence of the Lord in, in a limited way. And so Likewise, there will still be death on the earth during a transitional kingdom after the return of Jesus, and there will be need for sacrifice. I, don't think, I think that is the point of Revelation 21 in which there's no longer in the New Jerusalem after the transitional kingdom, there's no longer a temple or a naos. Instead of the eros, which is the temple complex as a whole, you, there's no longer a naos, there's no longer an inner court for which there to be sacrifices to be made because the Lord God is is uh, well, how can, how can we I forget how that goes how does it say Yeah the lamb is lamp and I would say didn't see I didn't see an inner court in the city I didn't see a temple because the Lord Lord God Almighty and the lamb are its inner court the city does not need the light of the need the sun or the moon to shine out for the glory of God gives it light and the lamb is its lamp. So I assume that there'll be a, a a continuance of sacrifices during the transitional period, thousand years or however long it is, whether that number's literal or not. You know, you have varied numbers in the intertestamental period. There was an assumption there would be a transitional period. And it was generally assumed to be a thousand years, but other, it wasn't always sometimes, it was more or less. So the sacrifices in and of themselves outward cleansing you know, so that they can be with the presence of God in this age. But even though it's limited. Right. Does that have to do mostly though with like the Shekinah glory when they actually filled the temple? Like where were, we're they possibly an expect, expectation that alright, he's he's in he's in heaven. He's gonna return until then. There might still be an expression of Shekinah glory in the temple, so we still gotta keep this outward Right, so there has to be a a cleansing of the flesh going on. Because we're still going to get, I mean, the Shekinah glory comes, even though inwardly we have salvation at the day of the Lord, and our bodies get renewed, we would die if the Shekinah glory had come? I assume that would be the implication, that if, you know, these are things that are kind of speculative, and it's kind of, this seems, seems right, to me, according to how the scriptures, to to make the most again, we're not talking about an airtight ship, right? Sometimes we're gonna have to bail water along the way, but we're we're trying to we're trying to get something that most holistically holds water or or, or floats. You know what I'm saying? So the song you kind of worry. You can sing that on <laughs> the second place. Yeah, that. that's it. Uh, I I mean yeah I mean you, there is kind of that you, you don't get a lot of discussion about the Shekinah glory in the New Testament so I think that's but yeah the, so in the book of Acts in the temple they're doing these sacrifices right. are these messianic Jews like, that have already accepted Christ that that do, is doing this or is this the uh, the uh, the Jews that have, have denied yeah both both and yeah there's unbelieving Jews and do side Jews. side by side, like I assume so. I mean, that's that, that's that's how I read. Um, <clears throat> that's how I read Acts twenty one, right? Where he comes up to the temple, he comes up to Jerusalem. He sees. He says, verse twenty. You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed? They are all zealous for the law. So there's an assumption that you have a large messianic community that are also involved. How much, how many of the believers are actually involved in the leadership? I don't know. You know whether Nicodemus is still hanging around or Joseph of Arimathea. You know if they're still involved in the leadership of all that. There's no testimony.